All right, you may be seated, friends. That was fantastic. Well, hey, yeah, great, a great job. Well, hey, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossroads, and it's my joy to open God's truth with you today as we close out this series called The Body, where, where we're looking at what it means to be the church, uh, the, this, this organism of God's design that we're a part of. And even though we, we are gathered here today in a building that we would pop, probably call the church, the reality is the church is not a building, that it's, um, it's not a political movement, it's not a social justice engine, um, but it's this, this, this organism where Jesus is the head, and as we follow his lead, and we work together in unity, and we understand how God's wired us and used our gifts and abilities for his purposes, that God's will is accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. It's an incredible uh, gift that God's given us, the church, and it's an incredible reality that you and I get to be a part of that. So today what we're going to look at is actually the context for where the church functions, where we live our lives, this world that we live in. Um, both individually and collectively as the church. And in a fun way, I'd like to just kind of wade into this by asking you, uh, who of us are beach people? Like you, you dig on, yeah, right? The, the mountains are clearly the best, right? But second to that are beaches, right? Beaches are fun. One of my buddies in Maui right now, and he's, he's posting all these great pictures, and, and it, uh, it just looks so good, right? So here's a picture of a popular beach in France. Uh, there's a lot of people that go on holiday here every year, just kind of get away, unwind, kicking soccer balls, kids playing in, in, in the, 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 the waves and all that stuff. Um, looks pretty fun, right? Here's a picture of that same exact beach several years before. So my question for you as we begin as you think about the world that we live in, the context for your life and my life, which picture best depicts the reality or the way you see that reality? Are you walking through life kind of thinking that it's a beach vacation, spiritually speaking, until Jesus gets back? Or do you walk life with an awareness of a battle that is going on around us? What's the nature of the world that we live in, and what does it mean for you and I to flourish in that, and for us collectively as the church to flourish in this world? Well, that's exactly what we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up. We're going to spend most of our time right there in Ephesians 6. If you don't have one, we'll throw everything on the screen for you as well. But we open up in chapter 10, and it tells us this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So this passage opens up with really bad news for those of us who hope that the Christian life was going to be just kind of a, a beach vacation until Jesus comes back. Uh, he tells us that we live in the midst of a world at war. It's, it's just a reality, and he lovingly shows us that. But the question is, do you and do I believe that? When you're with your family, when you're at work, when you're stuck in I-25 traffic, when you're dealing with financial pressures, 
Uh, when you pull up your news feed and find out something bad that happened yet in another part of the world, um, do you ever pause and, and wonder, is there something more going on here? Is there something more at work? And the Bible teaches us, and this passage opens up and tells us three things that we just need to be aware of. The first is to be strong in God's strength, in his strength. Second, to intentionally put on something like armor to protect ourselves. And three is to stand against schemes and strategies of a real enemy. So he opens up and says, yeah, there's something going on here. And here's three things that to, to flourish, you really need to wrap your mind around. The passage goes on in verse 12 and tells us this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, so this is getting really interesting, right? Because apparently we're not just navigating physical dangers as we walk through life, but there's a second dimension that's going on as well, that there's powers in a different realm that are affecting realities in the physical world where you and I live. So, uh, several years ago, uh, there was a show on Netflix called, it's still on Netflix, I think, called Str Stranger Things, and it, it was the rage a few years back, right? Everybody was watching it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, I guarantee your kids and grandkids do, right? Everybody was watching this, and it's a great story about these kids in the 1980s in Hawkins, Indiana, living their best life. I mean, they're just like cruising around on their BMX bikes, great 80s music, right? And just simple life, small town America. But as season one develops, we find out the larger story. See, in this quaint little town, there's been some weird stuff that's happened. A missing person, some strange um, just occurrences that nobody could really explain. And at the end of season one, it's revealed that there's another dimension to the world that these kids know of. It's this place called the Upside Down, which is a parallel dimension to their human experience where realities, influences, and even horrific creatures interact with the natural world. And as entertaining and fun as the show is, the question for us is, could that actually be a picture of the reality that we live in? Could it be more than just entertainment, but it actually gives us a picture of our world? See, our passage already told us that our battle is against co cosmic powers over our present age, against spiritual forces in heavenly places. See, the attacks we experience are actually coming from a secondary location. As easy as it is to, to pit against each other and, and blame politicians, I'm not saying they're not to blame for a lot, right? But like we can blame people and completely miss this secondary location where the attacks come from. Uh, if you think back to that picture I shared from D-Day, um, if you studied it, you, uh, you know that as the soldiers exited the landing craft and, and, and went onto the beach, the, the beaches were littered with obstacles and, and mines that were buried. And as bad as that was, that actually wasn't the biggest threat. The biggest threat to them was the machine guns and the mortars which were lined up along the coast to shoot onto the beach. 
So as they were moving forward, their greatest threat wasn't something that they could see. It was just something that came from a different location and took them out. And if the Bible's true, then what this passage is teaching us is that we have to believe that that's a reality in our experience. That the struggles that we face in everyday life, poor decisions people make, natural consequences of a fallen world, but there's also this secondary location that is calling in airstrikes on your life and my life. And as we think about that, and we think about the enemy that does this, the reality is their, their character, their nature is so sneaky. It tells us in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your tre- the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What this passage is telling us is that all of us, all human beings, apart from experiencing the work of God in their life, are being carried along, are being influenced by this force. And a lot of people don't like this assessment of humanity um, because I think in everyday life, we like to think that, I mean, for the most part, sure, everybody's a crappy driver, right? But for the most part, we're good people, right? Good coworkers, good neighbors, um, good human beings. And this notion that we would have this opposing power that is influencing us um, is offensive to a lot of people. Of course, for some of you, uh, you might hear that and and think, that explains my mother-in-law, right? Or my boss, or fill in the blank, right? And sure, there there are some, I'm not saying your mother-in-law, I'm not going there, but um, there, uh, there are some people who are absolutely carried along with evil motives. And, but for the most part, it's kind of easy to see them, right? They're, they're, They're dead set against God and his plans in this world, and there's, there, there, there's a prideful arrogance for their, their agenda to accomplish that. But the thing is, the way this enemy most commonly influences you and I and your neighbor and your coworker and people that we love is not in that kind of way. It's actually blindly by deep wounds and by fear. He, he gets into our heads and gets into our hearts and binds people up, imprisons them in destructive thinking, habits, desires, and lifestyles. And sure, sometimes that manifests in fits of rage and, and other manifestations, but for most people, it's just this, this baggage that just keeps people bound up, keeps them locked up, and causes them to walk through their life and feeling like they're failing, like they're not keeping up with everyone else or adulting like they really should be. And what makes this terribly troubling is that we live in a culture and a world 
that largely denies negative spiritual influence. Now, there's a lot of people who are spiritual in our culture, right? But the people that I interact with in my family and my, my friends who, who don't know Jesus, a lot of it is things like think good thoughts or feed positive energy into the universe or God helps those who help themselves, right? So there, there's a spiritual world that they feel connected to, but they never even consider the idea that there could be uh, a negative influence that is actually at work in that. And yet this passage is telling us lovingly that there is and be aware of it. Uh, years ago, I was uh, watching a video on schizophrenia because, you know, why not? Um, and uh, it just, and it was all of these stories about different people and their, their situations. And this one story just just captured my heart. It was this cute little five-year-old blonde girl, and she was just adorable. And it showed a video of her playing with her dolls and, and her little sister, and just being the sweetest, most, most wonderful child. And then it flashed to a video of her standing on a chair in her kitchen, yelling at her mom like this and saying, I'm going to cut your neck open. I'm going to cut your neck open so we can see the pipes. And this, like, it, it haunted me. It still kind of gives me the creeps. And th because what registered in my mind when I saw that was what she actually described was a picture, basic picture of human anatomy, that the, the windpipe and the veins in your neck actually look a lot like pipes. What scared me was unless her parents were showing her horrific videos as a little preschooler, where would she ever get this image of what's actually under the skin of a neck? And it haunted me for weeks to come, and the conclusion that I came to was that the evil influence over the world can actually, and maybe most commonly, plant thoughts in people's heads and then empower them to carry out things that are destructive to them and to others. Here's a list of things in our culture. Gun violence, right? Where someone methodically plans to take a weapon and go kill or hurt as many people as they can. Could the problem be more than mental health or easy access to weapons? Think of addictions where people make a choice to destroy their bodies relationships and their lives. Could it be that something is pulling these people into self-destruction? Think of the discord and hatred in all areas of our country, right? Every week there's something else that people are mad about and we're dividing over. Um, could it be motivated and directed by someone that's trying to pit humans against humans? Gender and sexual confusion. The degree of confusion and pain at the core of humanity today, where apparently in young people, one of four are struggling with some sense of sexual or gender dysphoria. Could there be someone steering this confusion and despair? Abuse in all of its forms, where people use some advantage they have in life to abuse and enslave other people. Could there be someone encouraging this horrific misuse of power and depression and mental health, an epidemic that's crushing millions of people in our culture, 
Could there be an architect seeking to crush joy and hope in humans and imprison them inside their own bodies? Now, please hear me. I'm not saying there, there's a demon behind every ill in our culture. But if we are not even considering the possibility of that, that could be naive at best and flat out ignorant or foolish as Christians at the worst. Jesus tells us in John 10.10 that God's enemy, our enemy, his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. To what degree could he be doing this through influences in people's lives that they don't even know about? And this is really bad news in our culture because the, the primary philosophy of our culture is called humanism, which is basically the idea that if you just let humans live how they want, they will flourish and we will all live better together. And I'm all for people's freedom, like live however you want to as, as long as it's in your yard, right? Um, but is it possible that there is a force or a person that is actually encouraging people to flourish in ways that actually do not bring human flourishing that breaks them down. In this passage, God calls us to be aware of the possibility or maybe the probability of this spiritual battle that's going on. And he encourages us to accept his, his assessment of our actual landscape. And then we're called to be aware that there's more at play in the world that we live in. God doesn't call us to be fearful, but he doesn't call us to be stupid either. And he wants us to be intentional and responsive um, and see the world rightly. So the question and where our passage takes us for the rest is, how do we flourish in the complications of this world that we live in? Um, God's, God called us to live here and he calls the church to thrive in this setting. So what does that look like? And starting in verse 13, our passage tells us this, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, for anybody that's been around church for a while and, and you've heard this passage, maybe the picture of how this is taught in kids' church like, uh, comes to mind. Like, every time I read it, I see the, the uh, kids coming in from, from the a kids' church wing with their cart, their bent cardboard swords and like, like armor taped to their body, and, and they're they're excited, and it's a great object lesson. I'm I'm not down on that. The problem I have is that I think we oftentimes remember the armor, but we don't actually remember what it represents and what it does. Uh, these things like faith, and uh, faith and truth. How how do they actually help us flourish and thrive? And what if they're actually weapons that God has given us to flourish in the world that we live in? See, oftentimes we think of them as lofty religious words, but what if they're actually there to help us be victorious with the coming attacks? So we're going to kind of run through each of these and briefly look at them and how they're a resource for you and I 
in everyday life to flourish in the midst of a world at war. So the first resource he shares is the belt of truth. And truth stands in opposition to errors and lies, right? And let's face it, we live in a world that is um, driven by lies. Whether it's marketing, uh, all the clickbait on social media, um, if you haven't noticed news is, yeah, I don't, I don't know how truthful it is anymore, right? Everywhere we look, there are lies that are coming our way. And what he tells us is put on truth so that we can stand against these lies. And the reality is, uh, it's a call to you and I that when a lie comes, comes onto our dashboard, to be able to uh, address it as a lie and dismiss it and cling to truth. That is a discipline for how we have to live our lives to flourish in the midst of a world at war. Here's some examples, like when you're you're bored or you're, you're, you're just bummed out. So you go shopping on Amazon or you go, go to the mall or something and you see something that you, know, you consider buying. The lie is that that thing is gonna make you happy. The truth might be telling yourself, I don't need to buy this to be fulfilled. How about this one? When we're tempted to do something bad for the momentary pleasure, God, and we, we can remind ourselves, God says this is wrong for me, and I'm going to cling to his best for my life. Or how about this? When you're scrolling on Instagram and you see your friend's vacations or their kid's success or whatever, and the lie comes into your head that you kind of suck as a parent or you're behind. Other people are actually living a better life than you are. We can replace that lie with telling ourselves, I haven't missed God's will and his best for my life. As long as I seek Jesus and his kingdom, God's plan, his perfect plan will unfold in front of me. The next thing he addresses is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, Webster defines righteous as free from guilt or shame. And, um, and that's when a lie gets into our heart and it actually just starts kind of to uh, grind us up. Now, some of us are, are more uh, susceptible maybe to guilt and shame. I'm really bad about this one, right? I'm, I might come off really laid back, happy-go-lucky, but like, man, Underneath the hood, like, I'm brutal with myself, right? I'm horrible with myself. Matter of fact, when I was a new Christian, for the first year and a half that I was a Christian, um, if I sinned in a big way um, for like a 20-year-old, which was pretty much every week, right? Um, every day. Um, I would put myself in spiritual timeout. So I would think back to when I sinned, and I would, a 48-hour 48, 48 window that I wouldn't pray, and I would not go to church because I didn't think God wanted his bad kid there. It, this is like a year and a half early on as a Christian, right? Until I realized that my righteousness is not something that I earn, but it's something that God gives to me. He loves me. Jesus died for this bad kid, right? And he wants me to know his love and his grace. But I would just live there and let that lie get to my heart. And the way we combat this is we remind ourselves as frequently as you need to of truth. Truths like this, I am loved, period. 
I am purposely and beautifully created. Sure, I sin sometimes, but because of Jesus, God sees me as righteous. And this one, nothing can separate me from the love of God. The breastplate of righteousness is clinging to the righteousness and not letting the lies into our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. And this, for many of us, is a discipline that we need to get better at, to cling to truth and not let the lies get in. The next thing the author shares is shoes for your feet. And it says, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, this one sounds weird, right? Like, put your shoes on. But if you think about it, um, we, we act and live differently when we have, like, flip-flops or we're barefoot or maybe your house slippers, right, than when you have your running shoes or your boots on, right? With one, you're not very able to run in or run out of a situation. But with boots or with shoes on, you're kind of mobile, And I think what he's saying here is in this world of battle that we live in, we have to be ready for movement. Now, sometimes that means running into a situation because a brother or sister needs you to be there for them and to help them. In other situations, it means being able to run out of a situation because you're in over your head. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people mess up or shipwreck their faith because they didn't have the, the footing to step into situations, hard situations with their families or with a business partner, or they didn't have the strength to step out of a situation, whether it's a bad relationship, a sexual temptation, um, just a situation that in their mind they know this is not good, but I'm just going to see how, if it improves. And it doesn't, because the wisdom of God tells us sometimes you just need to move and you need to get out of situations quickly. The next he shares is the shield of faith, a resource we're told that extinguishes flaming darts of the evil one. Now shield of faith, what is faith? Well Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Hear that? It's the conviction of things not seen. It's realities that haven't actually surfaced yet. So most of God's promises are like this, right? Um, I'm experiencing the salvation and the love of God through Jesus right now, but a day is coming when I'm going to experience it fully. I'm believing that in faith. Or how about our transformation, right? Most of us um, are not perfect yet, right? If you are, uh, talk to me later. Yeah, to, uh, tell me your secret. But we're not because the Christian life, uh, the theological word for it is sanctification. That when you accept Jesus, when you respond to him in faith, and then you live the Christian life, the whole journey is a journey of transformation. You, you, do, you don't arrive, it's a process. And the enemy would love to tell you, you're a terrible Christian, because, fill in the blank, right? And the reality is, um, you're not Jesus, right? We are sinful beings that are being transformed, and Jesus is a Savior who is saving people. And this shield of faith protects us from the lies of our enemy that tell us, 
you don't have it all together, or you're, you're even failing Jesus in modeling him to the, the world around you. You're not perfect, but faith is believing and trusting in this work that God's doing in all of our lives. The next thing he shares is the helmet of salvation. And this focuses on our thinking and what we allow into our heads. And I mean, like a bullet or an arrow to the head is fatal, right? Um, um, equally, unhealthy images or thoughts can take you and I out. Uh, we, 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 can, we can see something or we can think something and that thought can just rattle around in our head and, and cause so much damage before it works its way out of our body. And in 2 Corinthians 10, it tells us this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And listen to this, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive. And I would argue that most of our spiritual attacks, they begin in our head, they root in our heart, and then they either fester there and do internal damage to us, or they work themselves out in the words we say or the things we do with our hands and cause damage in the world. But it begins with our mind. This summer, I've, I've gotten really into prayer hiking, uh, just, just uh, going out uh, solo and just spending hours just in the woods talking to God. And man, it's been, it's been frustrating because I go out there and I start just kind of walking in silence and I just think horrible things, like I, you know, about everything. And what I realize and what God's revealed to me is when I'm silent with him, he opens the release valve and just lets things out that are actually there, but he lets me release them so that I can either confess them and push them aside, or I can allow him to heal something that's wrong in my thinking. But this is a labor as we think of that helmet of salvation that we need to protect our minds um, in order to flourish. The last point he shares is the sword of the spirit, which he calls, which is the word of God. Um, and I believe this is the most valuable resource God's given us because it's actually an offensive weapon. You see, everything else listed is a defensive weapon, right? Uh, it, it deflects attacks. But a sword is an offensive weapon. A sword will shut it down. And the best picture of this, of using the word of God as, as, a, as an offensive weapon, is in the life of Jesus. If you know his story, uh, before he started his earthly ministry, he went in the wilderness for, for uh, 40 days and fasted. And toward the end, he was hungry, he was tired, he was worn out. And the enemy came to him and he tempted him three times and he offered him uh, uh, to either relieve his suffering in some capacity or he offered to fulfill the mission that Jesus had. All he said was, I'll give it to you. Just worship me. And it's interesting because when Jesus was attacked, all he did was he quoted the Bible back at the devil. He used the truth of God's word in order to counterattack the lies that were coming his way. 
he didn't quote some hipster pastor or he didn't just quote some meme that came across a screen, not that he had a screen yet, um, but he knew the depth of God's word and he was able to diffuse error with truth by doing that. And uh, please hear this with a pastor's heart. I don't mean to shame or guilt anyone, but the reality is surveys show that most people that claim to follow Jesus don't actually read their Bible on their own. Again, no shame, no guilt. A lot of people today, they listen to podcasts, they read uh, the inspirational things on their feed. All of that's good. But the question I have is, how will we ever know the difference between errors and lie and, and truth if we don't expose ourselves ongoingly to truth? See, when, when we read the Bible, we get to know the heart of the God behind the Bible, and we also fill our heads with truth so that when a lie comes our way, we can recognize it as the lie that it is. You see, all of this, this armor of God are all resources that God has given you and I to be able to flourish. And he's given it to us collectively and in, as a body, as the church, for us to flourish and accomplish God's purposes here on the earth. See, the beauty of the body is that we're called to life together. That's why every week from this stage, we end every one of our services with an invitation to take the next step, to get connected, to find your people, to find a community. Um, for those who are in a community group, you get this, right? You have Christians in your life who you meet with frequently, who encourage you, who might call you out when you get kind of squirrely, but they're there for you, right? They've got your back. And in a world at war, like this passage is telling us about, uh, soldiers alone on a battlefield are dead, right? Your target practice. But soldiers that go into battle together, who have each other's back, they have a fighting chance. And because of Jesus, we don't just have a fighting chance, the victory is already claimed. So I'd encourage you, uh, this, this fall, um, get connected. Wherever you are, Get connected more deeply here at Crossroads. Uh, we have a fantastic men's and women's ministry, which is kind of a first way to connect and just meet some people. We have community groups that are deeper ways of connecting and literally walking life with a group of people in an ongoing way. And I'd encourage you in the world that we live in to take that step. Now, for some of you, uh, maybe you're just checking us out today and this whole thing is new to you and I freaked you out a little bit, right? Stranger Things, D-Day, the devil. I mean, not, not a lot of fun stuff there. Um, I'd encourage you, we want you to flourish. We want you to live an amazing life that God created you for. And we believe that that begins with meeting and knowing Jesus. He is the victor um, who ultimately defeated Satan at the cross when he rose from the grave. The battle's still waging on, but, but, but the victory is already accomplished. And we want you to know this Jesus 
so that you can begin the journey of hearing him diffuse lies in your life and replace it with truth. So I'd encourage you, take that step today or sometime in the near future. The way you do that here at Crossroads is you shoot us a text to start a conversation. You can send a text to 720-513-1933 and just text the keyword Jesus. A real person will respond, answer any questions you have, and we'll, we'll support you in your exploration. But we'd encourage you, check that out and meet Jesus for yourself to begin this process. Well, for those of us who know Jesus, we take communion here every week for one reason, because the victory in your life is not based on your works and your action. It's based on all that Jesus has accomplished for us already. Jesus died on a cross willingly. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross to set us free. So we take this bread now in celebration of this work of Jesus. And in this great battle, there's bloodshed, right? And the first one to shed their blood was Jesus because he loves me and he loves you that much. So we celebrate his victory by reminding ourselves of his bloodshed on the cross. Let's drink this in celebration of Jesus' victory. And as we sing, and we're going to celebrate the amazing goodness of God together, but I'd encourage you, if God has stirred something in your heart today, Maybe he reminded you of something in the past. There's something, there's some baggage that you're carrying. I'd encourage you today, an act of worship for you is to offload that. Give that to God. And the way you can do that is you can just slide out at any time. You can go to the wall over here and there's kind people who would love to pray with you in that process. For our friends online, uh, you can, you can, you can uh, say something in the chat and someone will respond to you there. Um, we are so grateful that we live under the authority of Jesus and we get to live lifestyles of worship to him and we get to sing and celebrate his goodness together. So let's stand together.